you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke, or not to Luke, that was a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. If you're trying to find it, it's one of those small books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. Today we're beginning a series that I've entitled God's Redeeming Love, and we'll walk through the book of Ruth. If you're familiar with the story at all, the book of Ruth is one, it's a beautiful story filled with action and adventure, with twists and turns, and it all comes in just four short chapters. We don't know who the author of the book is. Some have suggested Nathan the prophet during the reign of David. Others have said maybe Samuel or Solomon or someone later. And the reality is we don't know, but ultimately it doesn't matter. For God is the ultimate author of all of Scripture. It's by His Spirit that the Word came to be. And so we trust Him. And this short story takes place in the time when there was no king in Israel, and it points to the need of a king. But more than that, it teaches about God's redeeming love. If you're familiar with the, the, the hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, one of the stanzas has a refrain Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And that's the theme, I think, of the book of Ruth, God's redeeming love. Today we're looking at just the first five verses of chapter one. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help and his blessing. Almighty God, you have told us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now God's holy word, Ruth 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Back in 1958, a small community in northeastern Pennsylvania built a building that was going to be their police station, their fire station, and their city hall. And they were proud of this building. It was the result of sacrificial giving from many in the community and uh, detailed planning by those involved in the process. And when it came time for the ribbon-cutting ceremony, over 6,000 people were there, almost the entire population of the town. Within less than two months, however, they began to notice some ominous cracks in the side of the building. Sometime later, it was noticed that the windows would not shut all the way. And then the roof began to leak. Within a few more months, the building had to be evacuated to the embarrassment of the builder and the disgust of the taxpayers. 
the town hired a firm to do an analysis of what happened. And shortly thereafter, they found that blasts from a nearby mining area were slowly but effectively destroying the building. Imperceptible, down beneath the foundation, there were small shifts and changes that caused the whole foundation to crack. You couldn't feel it. You couldn't see it on the surface until it was too late. A city official finally had to ride across the door of that building condemned. And eventually it was demolished. You know, often what is unseen makes the biggest impact. And here in the opening of the book of Ruth, we find something very similar. The real danger facing this Israelite family is not immediately clear. What I hope as we work through this passage, we'll see what they were facing and how we can learn the lessons from it today. Our text opens with the words, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. You know, at first glance, this seems just kind of like some introductory material that we just need to kind of move past so that we can get on with the good part of the story. In some ways, you could approach the first five verses like this. Oh, it's an introduction. Let's get to the good part. But doing that fails to realize what's really happening. And the author is setting the stage, giving us important details to show us what's going on and why all of this really matters. And so there's a famine in the land. There's a natural disaster plaguing this part of the world. Now, the text doesn't tell us how widespread this famine was. But the context will tell us it couldn't be too widespread, for it doesn't seem to have impacted Moab, which was simply 50 miles to the southeast across the Dead Sea. Perhaps this famine was in all of Israel, but at least we know that it was in the southern part of Judah, the little town of Bethlehem. Now what comes to mind when you hear the word Bethlehem? Don't overthink it. The birth of Jesus, right? And that will be important for us later in the story, as we'll see in a few weeks. But what you might not know about Bethlehem is what the name means. Bethlehem means house of bread. Do you see the irony there? As one commentator put it, Israel was supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey, but you cannot even find bread in the house of bread. You know, this was worse than a grocery store in South Carolina when a quarter inch of snow was predicted, right? And no bread to be found anywhere. It's tempting for us to think, man, Mother Nature, she's bad, right? But the Bible doesn't talk about Mother Nature. No, God is at work in all of this. Now, everything that happens is a part of the sovereign work of God. And in the Old Testament, we read about how famine it's part of God's judgment and discipline for his people and their sin. Leviticus 26, starting in verse 18, states, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. While we cannot see the hand of the Lord at work, is certainly there underneath the surface. This famine is part of his judgment for the people's covenantal unfaithfulness. And so there's a severe physical disaster. Yet there's another disaster that's even worse, and that's 
a spiritual disaster. Remember our passage began in the days when the judges ruled. And that points us back to one book prior to the book of Judges. If you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that it's a dark part of the history of Israel. In that we find a cycle, or really a downward spiral of rampant idolatry and sin. The people will rebel against God, and God will raise up a foreign army to come and put them into captivity. The people will suffer for a number of years, and then eventually they'll cry out to God, and God will raise up a judge to deliver them. And then the cycle starts over, and it gets worse and worse and worse. The people worship the gods of those around them, and they turned away from the Lord. The book of Judges ends this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As you can imagine, no centralized leadership and rebellion against the laws of God led to chaos. It was anarchy, and the people just did what was best to them, what was good in their own eyes. Does it sound familiar? kind of mirrors the postmodernism of today, that you know, kind of whatever works is good. It's this idea of whatever is good for me is good for me, whatever is good for you is good for you, and so you do and believe what you want, and I'll do and believe what I want, and never the two shall meet. The problem with that, though, is while it sounds good in theory, it just doesn't work. It leads to moral corruption and societal upheaval. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And here in this story, it's a very dark time for the people of God. The spiritual disaster they're facing is worse than the physical one. The people needed revival. And against, it's against this backdrop, physical and spiritual disaster, that we find a particular Israelite family enter stage left. Verse 2, it says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. We don't know a whole lot about them. They're from Ephrathah, the part of Bethlehem. We do know their names, and that will be insightful later. So there's a famine in the land that's directly connected to God's judgment for the sin of the people. And so it raises the question, what should faithful Israelites do in the face of such disaster? How should they respond? Well, they should respond with repentance and faith. They shouldn't seek the face of God and have, they should have begged for His mercy and grace. They should have patiently waited for the deliverance of the Lord. Is that what this family does? Not at all. As we'll see in a minute, they sojourned in Moab. But before we get to their trip to Moab, we first need to realize that there's a heart issue that precipitated this decision to leave Bethlehem. What was this heart issue? It was distrust. They lacked trust in the promises of God and His providence. This was the land that God had promised their forefathers years before. In Genesis 12, 7, we read, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This land was the home of God's people. It was the fulfillment of the promises of God. It was where they belonged. Contemplating leaving was certainly not the right thought. And the cause was distrust. And as we'll see in a minute, 
that distrust led them down a dark road of disobedience. Friends, so often distrust leads you and I to disobey God. Think back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Satan takes on the form of a a serpent and he tries to get Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does he do? Does he say, hey, here's some fruit, eat it. No, he's more crafty than that. Do you remember what he says to them? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know what he's doing? He's planting seeds of doubt. He's trying to get them to distrust God. And it worked. And it worked for Elimelech and his family. The name Elimelech means my God is king. But the actions of this man, his distrust, that leads, as we'll see in a minute, to disobedience, does not correlate with his name at all. He's not living as if God is his king. Friends, so often you and I doubt God and we're filled with distrust. Kids, do you trust God when he says that it's good for you to honor your father and your mother? Teenagers, are you tempted to distrust God when you feel all alone at school or when you don't feel like you're supported like you want to be? Perhaps distrust arises in your heart when, like Elimelech and his family, you face disaster. When you or your spouse get sick, do you doubt God's goodness? When you hear the words, we're sorry, but we're going to have to let you go, do you doubt God's provision? What about as a church? We don't feel like we're growing as much as we'd like. We don't have as many children and youth as we might want. We're without a senior pastor. Are we going to trust God? Distrust is so common for all of us. Where is it in your life? I encourage you to ask the Lord to show you where you're prone to have a lack of trust. The problem with distrust is that it leads oftentimes to disobedience. Perhaps you're thinking, John, I don't see a whole lot of sin in this passage. I mean, Elimelech and his family, they're not worshiping false gods that we know of. They're not killing people. I mean, things could be a lot worse, right? Well, maybe. But there's also things that are beneath the surface that are not so good. What does Elimelech do when there's no bread in the house of bread? takes his family to sojourn to Moab. They become strangers, aliens, nomads, wandering in a foreign land. Well, what's the big deal with going to Moab? I mean, it's only 50 miles away. That can't be that bad, right? Well, what does the Bible tell us about Moab? In Genesis 19, we read that the people of Moab came from the incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and one of his daughters. So there's a connection between the Moabites and Sodom, the city that God destroyed for their wickedness. The Moabites didn't treat the people of Israel well at all. In Numbers 22 through 24, we read about how the king of Moab tried to hire the prophet Balaam to bring curses upon God's people, and it doesn't work. But then the women of Moab entice the men of Israel, and it leads to some problems. And then in Judges 3, we read about how Moab ruled over Israel for 18 years as a part of God's judgment. All of that to say, Moab was not the place to go. You know, we're kind of tempted to give Elimelech a break. I mean, there's a famine in the land. He's just trying to provide for his family, right? You do what you got to do. 
He's got good intentions. Well, the truth about good intentions is they're not always as good as we like to tell ourselves they are. You see, Elimelech was more concerned about the physical well-being of his family than about their spiritual well-being. The Moabites worshipped the pagan god Chemosh. Surely living there, and as we see in our passage, they were there for 10 years, surely that had its impact, leading them away from the worship of Yahweh. Yet Elimelech doesn't consider the religious implications of his decisions. He's just doing what's right in his own eyes. How often is that the case for us? We can be so driven by practical considerations and by our emotions that we don't even think about the spiritual ramifications for what we're contemplating doing. Men, how often do you think about the spiritual implications of a decision you have when you're offered a new job or a promotion? Oh, but I'm going to make a lot more money. I can give my family the life they've always wanted. But at what cost? Perhaps it'll cause you to not be here and worship on Sundays. Maybe it will cause you to travel and you can't invest in the spiritual nurture of your children. And yes, they may have more money, but if it takes them further away from God, is it worth it? Our parents, think about the decisions you have with your kids when it comes to extracurricular activities and sports. There's nothing wrong with those things. And so what does it matter whether or not your kid plays travel sports? And yet that travel team very likely may take them away from worship on Sundays. But they might get a scholarship. They may. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Teenagers, think about this. When you're getting ready to go to college and you're thinking about, oh, this is going to be a great academics and a lot of fun. But do you ever consider where you're going to go to church when you're there? You know the most important Sunday for young people to go to church? It's not last week of Easter. It's actually that first Sunday when they're away at college. Why? Because it sets the stage for the rest of your college career. I can almost guarantee if you don't go to church that first Sunday, it's going to be hard to go later on. So think about that as you make decisions about college. Going to Moab was sinful for Elimelech and his family. Yet their sin goes from bad to worse. The two boys, Mahlon and Kilio, marry Moabites. Well, what's the big deal with that? The problem is, in Deuteronomy 7, God told his people not to intermarry with the people of the land. Not for ethnic reasons, but for religious reasons. And while the people of Moab aren't listed there in Deuteronomy 7, the spirit of the law applies not to marry an unbeliever. Elimelech is dead at this point, but we don't read of Naomi speaking any kind of truth into her two sons' lives. So they sinned by marrying foreign women. Once again, we see them doing what's right in their own eyes. The New Testament picks up on this idea. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says that we're to marry in the Lord, which means that a believer is never to marry an unbeliever. And if you're here today and you're single, the most important quality you should look for in a person to date or possibly marry is a deep love for Jesus. Don't fall into the trap of someone who doesn't love the Lord. You might think, well, I can win them to Christ. I'll be a missionary in my dating life. No, it doesn't work that way. We'll pull you away from the Lord, not towards him. 
Parents, learn from Naomi's failure. Speak truth to your kids. Don't be okay with them dating a non-believer. It won't end well, I promise. Disobedience is a problem for all of us. Where are you tempted on a regular basis? It might not be exactly like Elimelech and his family, but there's temptation for all of us. There's sin for all of us. Where is it? What does it look like? Disaster leads to distrust, which leads to disobedience, which finally leads to discipline and judgment. What happens to Elimelech in verse 3? He dies. And now the text doesn't explicitly say this was a result of his disobedience, but everything points us to that. How do I know? Well, at the end of verse 3, it says that Naomi was left with her two sons. The Hebrew word there carries the connotation of being the one who survives God's wrath. And as that wasn't enough, the two sons die as well. And once again, we see that same word repeated, that Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. She's the one who survives the wrath of God. Now, it's tempting for us to feel sorry for Elimelech and his family. That's not fair. Or we might think, well, that's Old Testament, but we live in the New Testament. Praise God. We got Jesus and grace and mercy. But we must remember that God takes sin seriously. This family directly rebelled against the commands of God. God takes sin serious. Does this, does this mean that every death or every trial that we face is a direct result of our sin? By no means. In John chapter 9, we read about a man born blind, and the disciples ask Jesus, hey, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus says, no, it's not either. But that the power of God might be displayed. Some suffering is just the result of life in a broken, fallen, and sinful world. Other times, there is a connection to our sinful choices. We may reap the consequences for our actions. We don't want to move too past our trials. Perhaps God is using them to prune us, like we saw in John 15 a couple weeks ago. God disciplines the ones he loves. Think about the horrendous situation Naomi now finds herself. Her husband is dead. Her two sons are dead. That's an amazing amount of grief. I don't know there's some of you here today who can relate in some ways. And if you can, I just want you to know that God in his word speaks words of kindness and hope. Yes, there is suffering, but there is hope in the Lord. And his kindness is so real. On top of Naomi's grief, she's also destitute. She has no male to provide for her. And in this day and age, she would have been in big trouble. She's in a foreign land of Moab. Are the Moabites going to care about her? No. They're going to leave her on her own. She's too old to remarry. More than likely, she doesn't have a trade that she can get a job to provide. What would be her options in Moab? To sell herself as a slave. In other words, Naomi has hit rock bottom. And to make matters worse, if nothing changes, her family name is going to die out, which would have been just awful at that time. And yet in spite of these horrific circumstances, God is still at work. He uses the rock bottom to get Naomi's attention. He doesn't leave her in Moab to die. No, he comes and he is at work. He brings her to a place where she realizes she needs to go home. And as we'll see in two weeks, she does just that. 
The story is told of a farmer who watched a bird building a nest and a heap of branches cut from an apple tree beside his house. All day the bird toiled, and at night the farmer went out and took down the nest and broke it all to pieces. The next day the bird, undaunted, goes back to her work, building a nest in, those, in that pile of branches. And again the farmer destroys the nest. Judged by the feeble standards of the bird, ignorant of all beyond the cycle of her instincts, the man was cruel and not to be called good. But the third day she began to build her nest once more, but this time in the rose bush beside the kitchen door. And in the evening the, the farmer smiled upon her work and let the nest be built. Day after day she continued her work. The nest was finally completed. The eggs were laid and warm beneath the bird's bosom. But long before the time for hatching, the pile of branches from which she had been driven had been removed. And the far-seeing farmer allowed the bird to have her way. All of her nests, all of her little ones, all of her hopes for the summer would have been dashed to pieces. She didn't see beyond one summer, but he saw the end from the beginning. Friends, we have a God who knows the end from the beginning. And that farmer drove the bird out. It seemed unkind, but it actually was very kind. God allowed Naomi to reach rock bottom. It seems unkind for God to do that, but God used it to bring her back to himself. Oftentimes, God uses the trials in our lives to keep us from running from him any longer. They bring us to a place where we see our need more clearly. Friends, you're never too far gone to come back to the Lord. Your children or grandchildren who have wandered away are not too far gone. God can work and bring them back. There's hope. The beloved Psalm 23 ends with the word, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word follow is really better translated pursue. Surely God's goodness and mercy will pursue me, will run after me, will chase me down and bring me back. And that's what God does here to Naomi. He doesn't say, oh, you made some bad choices, you're in Moab, sorry about it. No, he chases her down. And often God does that with us. So perhaps is your story. Maybe it's been your story. And in some ways it's our story every time we sin because God loves us enough to chase us down with his redeeming love. Friends, God is so good. He pursues us and brings us back. His redeeming love is better than anything you can imagine. So embrace it and build your life upon it. Let us pray.